Hi everyone. For this podcast short, I thought we'd listen to Jeff. Um, recently, he did a talk for Stroud Film Society on Journey's End, which we will redo here. Jeff, would you like to start? Thank you, Neil. Thirty years ago, the BBC put on a comedy show about World War One, and as you can imagine, the switchboard lit up like a pinball machine with complaints and these complaints went on all the way through the series until the last episode of Blackadder Goes Forth was shown and then the full intent of the series was realised and everybody went quiet. Last year in this current and wonderful superhero craze that we're in the middle of Wonder Woman was released part of that film is set in World War One. in fact you see her fighting in the trenches. Needless to say more complaints were generated so what is it about a conflict that very shortly will be a hundred years since it's finished. Every participant is now deceased. Why is it so sensitive? Well, that's what we're going to have a look at tonight, and I'm going to guide you through that no-man's land of a question, and in particular with reference to the latest and rather wonderful version of Journey's End, which was released earlier this year. So what we're going to do is we're going to have a look at the history of World War I films, and trust me, it's slightly different to what you might think. We're going to have a look at where the sensitivity and what I call the unwritten rules came in. And then ultimately, we're going to look at how Journey's End ties into all of that. So let's go back to these World War I films that cropped up after the conflict had finished. Now, it's a curious thing. After every conflict, and we've seen this since the birth of cinema, there's this period 10 to 20 years after the end of the conflict where nostalgia comes in and plays a big part obviously a lot of that is people looking back on their youth but you see it reflected in the entertainment the best example is World War 2 where after World War 2 10 years to 20 years on you got films like The Dambusters on one end of the scale an action adventure like Where Eagles Dare and The Dirty Dozen on the other end of the scale and World War I was no different. There were many action-adventure films reflecting back on that conflict. In fact, the first film to win the Oscar in 1927 for Best Film was Wings, directed by William Wellman. And that is a World War I action-adventure. It's a very well-staged action-adventure, but action-adventure nonetheless. The plot, relatively simple, is about two pilots, two American pilots who by day fight the Germans and by night fight each other for the love of the same woman. And what really stands out, if you ever get a chance to see the film, is how striking the aerial footage is. The action sequences is just incredible. In fact, they used a lot of real World War I fighter pilots, uh, and unfortunately a number of them were killed during the course of that film, as you'll see if you ever get a chance to have a look at it. And that was pretty standard. A couple of years later, the famous Howard Hughes made Hell's Angels. Try that title today for a World War I film. And in 1930, he made another film, and stop me if you've heard this before, it's about two American pilots who by day fight the Germans and by night fight each other for the love of the same woman. <laughs> and this didn't only stop at action adventure, there were plenty of comedies. The famous comedian Buster Keaton in 1930 made Doughboys. Now, Doughboys, uh, for those that don't know what that title means, is actually a slang term for the uniform worn by service personnel of the American army during that conflict. 
Now in this film, Keaton is a multi-millionaire. He's trying to win the love of his life who's not really interested. So to win her over, he does a selfless act. He joins the army. And what do you know? After basic training, they ship him off to France. How they must have laughed. (laughs) And it wasn't only Keaton. You had people like Laurel and Hardy make two World War I films during this period. There was Pack Up Your Troubles in 1931 and blockheads in 1938 and we'll look at blockheads because this plot just defies description to be quite honest so at the end of the war 1918 oliver harney gets his papers he goes home nobody tells stan laurel so for 20 years he remains guarding his trench and the only reason he's discovered is when he shoots down a french plane well (laughs) bbc switchboard would have been in overdrive with something like that and this goes on into world war ii and you get a film like Sergeant York, which is Gary Cooper playing real-life war hero Alvin York. Now, York was a religious objector to World War I who's persuaded to ultimately join up, and he becomes a hero by the amount of Germans that he captures in that conflict, and it is very much done as a rah-rah event. Obviously, 42, they're going for a big recruitment drive in America. This film definitely played its part. It's award-winning, And it is actually quite a good film, but definitely outdated. Now, things really changed after World War II. At this point, having gone through that conflict, people look back in World War I in a different way. Now, I spoke about nostalgia, and that nostalgia obviously ultimately fades. And what you're left with World War I is the first major conflict that was filmed from beginning to end. Mm. And as a result of that, the truth is there for everybody to see. You know, in wars before World War One, there was always this glamour that was associated with them, not with World War One. So the first of the three unwritten rules, if you like, is the realism of World War One is there for everybody to see. Also, coming out of World War Two, you were fighting a conflict that had a very clear point. You were fighting fascism. World War One, again, from that perspective, having come out of that war is not as clear-cut. The reasons for it starting are not clear. The reasons why everybody was bogged down in trenches for four years is still not clear. So you've got the horror, and you've now got a pointlessness. And then finally, you've got class. Now, after World War I itself, there was a lot of kickback on the people that led mm. these troops, m- millions of them to their death. Captain P.A. Thompson in 1927 immortalised the quote, though he didn't actually say it, lions led by donkeys and after world war ii that really gathered pace and the reason for that is the whole social structure changed in the uk we had a labor government that did massive social structure the birth of the nhs for example in america you had the growth of suburbia so people didn't look at these ruling classes or leaders in much the same way and things really started to change so those three rules the horror the pointlessness and class impacted on how World War I films were going to be made going forward. But interestingly, they also had an impact going backwards. I didn't mention two films from the 30s, and that's because they have now become known as classics and are quite regularly shown. The first of these is All Quiet on the Western Front by Lewis Milestone in 1930. Masterpiece. Absolutely. Absolute masterpiece. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And... One of the reasons is it doesn't pull its punches. It shows uh, a young German man who's idealised, mm. 
who, who idealizes the fatherland yeah. and what they're fighting for gets to see the real horror of the war to that absolutely heartbreaking ending mm. that's in the film. I think it, it's what's really sad about it is that it was said at the time, this is the war film that will stop all future wars. It's <laughs> just a pity that wasn't yeah. the case. And the other film from the 30s was Le Grand Illusion, uh, Jean Renoir's film, 1937, which is set in a prisoner of war camp during World War One. It's a very anti-war film. It's so powerful that Adolf Hitler during World War Two wanted every print of it destroyed. Thankfully, that's another thing he screwed up. So that's going back, but let's look at going forward, and I'll just take two examples. The first is my favorite, one of my favorite Stanley Kubrick films, mm. and I think his first masterpiece, *Powers of Glory* yep. from 1957, starring Kirk Douglas. And the plot, which is based on a true story, involves an attack on a landmark called the Antill, and the French troops were outgunned. You know, it had one, hadn't been planned properly, and they were fought back. The French generals were incensed, if you like, the ruling classes were incensed by the failure of this mission. So they randomly selected French troops and shot them. As a result of this powerful film, France banned it for 20 years. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Franco took offence to it in Spain, put a ban in place that lasted 28 years. I think that was 13, was it 13 years after his death, I think, before they were able to see it. Um, Whereas on the other side of the coin, Winston Churchill said it's one of the best films he ever saw about World War One, And you can come right up to date. In 2011, Steven Spielberg made War Horse, mm. although it looks at it from point of view of animals. You see the pointlessness. You see you know, just the horror of it. And also the class system, the Benedict mm. Cumberpatch character who results in many men getting killed or captured through just a completely farcical action that he does. Great, great film. So how does all this tie into Journey's End? Well, Journey's End really has been aware of the sensitivity of these rules almost from the very beginning. R.C. Sheriff uh, fought in World War I, uh, certainly was embittered by the class system that allowed many men around him to die, and he immortalised that in his play of Journey's End, which was first staged in London 1928. And a 21-year-old Laurence Olivier played the role of Stanhope, mm. um, the, who's the officer who's brutalised by war, certainly alcoholic, shell-shocked, just on the verge of a nervous breakdown. And it was a massive hit. It was very quickly filmed, filmed in 1930, directed by James Whale, who was another veteran of World War One, starred Colin Clive, and it was such a hit that if we go back to something I mentioned earlier, he was invited over to Hollywood to work with Howard Howard Hughes on Hell's Angels, and that springboarded him to his greatest success, where Universal offered Whale and Colin Clive the uh, film of Frankenstein. Now, the Germans, not to be outdone by this, were very quickly made their own version called The Other Side, changed the character names, and in that film, Conrad Veidt, best known as the Sonambulist mm. for uh, Dr. Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, played the Stanhope character. It goes quiet on Journey's End after that until the 70s, and then we get a version set in the Royal Flying Corps. The names have changed, the plot remains the same. In essence, in the Flying Corps at that time, the average life expectancy of a pilot was three weeks. Malcolm McDowell plays the Stanhope character, 
and a very young Peter Firth has a great part in that as well. So well worth tracking down. A much more standard version was made in 1988 by the BBC, starring Jeremy Northam as Stanhope. And this brings us right up to date with this current version. The interesting thing about this current version, yes, it conforms to all the rules, certainly the three rules of showing the horror, the pointlessness and the class system. And yet, in this centenary year, it was a very difficult film to get off the ground. It was a real struggle to find the financing. And I'll give you an example. The location manager on this film is a chap called Midge Ferguson. And Midge works for... He's Guy Ritchie's go-to person, really. So he does a lot of big-budget work. Mm. But he believed in this project and took time off to work at a much lower rate to make sure this film was done. My understanding is that Midge had heard about a place called Trench Farm up in Ipswich. Now, Trench Farm is a farm that has his own trenches, hence the title. <laughs> and the reason... <laughs> Who'd have thought? It, it makes have... it far too easy. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> where's, the, where's the thought in that? <laughs> and um, the, the reason it had trenches is a few years ago, Sainsbury's did a Christmas advert where the Germans, they recreated that famous 1914 Christmas truce where the Germans and the British play football in no man's land. Mm-hmm. And when they finished filming, they kept the trenches there. So he was able to use that for this particular film. And it didn't only stop there behind the scenes. Also in front of the camera, a lot of the actors worked for scale just to be able to get this film made at a cost of just a couple of million dollars. And again, Mm -hmm. thankfully using lottery money. So you had Sam Claflin playing Stanhope, I think a career best performance so far from him, young Asia Butterfield, but the cream of British acting like Paul Bettany, Stephen Graham and Toby Jones. And it's you know they've they've done a tremendous job with this film, and it is a shame that it had such poor distribution when it came out. And again, if you think this is the centenary year, you've got a film that follows all the rules of what should be in a World War One film. It's a very angry film, as it has every right to mm, be angry, mm. showing the pointlessness of, of these deaths. It also captures some of the grave humour. I think Stephen Graham and Toby Jones, yeah, particularly showed that in the course of the film it doesn't glamorize the violence it cuts away from it and it makes a very strong statement and it is just genuinely sad i think that a film as good as this didn't get the distribution it's very difficult to track down yeah no Um, particularly when you think that this film cost two million dollars to make yeah two to three million say whereas next year you've got Greyhound, starring Tom Hanks. Destroyer, starring Mark Wahlberg, directed by Mel Gibson. Thanks. And (laughs) an all-star cast of The Battle of Midway, with production, combined production costs, close on half a billion dollars. And yet, a film like Journey's End struggled to be made. And you've got a question, is this, you know, why is the sensitivity there? Is the sensitivity that we don't want to face World War I? You know, is it difficult to watch these films as opposed to the heroism of World War II? I mean, I think it's important that we say that we had a at the flicks evening out to to watch this movie, and I was shell shocked after it. I mean, it was relentless, harrowing, harrowing, and relentless. And uh, you know, you said, "Oh, Stanhope's an alcoholic." I don't think he's an alcoholic. I think. Alcohol was the only thing that numbed the unbelievable um, conditions he was in. I mean, it, it was just 
just it's, unbelievable. And the officers, the, 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 the ruling classes, as it were, had not a clue what they were doing. And didn't want to know. And, di- and really and didn't, didn't want to And didn't want to know, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and it was just, and, you know, after it was over um, and we sat there, everybody just watched the credits roll up as if, you know, we were just, everybody was taking five minutes to just come down because yeah. it was just so relentless. And it's, it, it was horrible. It was absolutely, and then the at the end they flash up the fact that uh, the the sort of the climax of the film that in the actual real events in real life seven hundred thousand men lost their lives, and this was the spring offensive. This was start a- of the spring offensive in April. <laughs> 2018 1918 1918 yeah 2018 is this year 1918 and and that was seven months before they signed the armistice yes Uh, and and 700,000 people died. It wasn't like the Germans were giving up slowly. They just yeah. went, no, we can't be bothered to continue. We give up. Yeah. We've run out of men. Which yeah. is, but I guess that's how wars were fought in previous years. Of, but, well, previous centuries. But the thing was, millennia. it said 700,000 comes up on the screen. And then you, you, you sort of, that, you, that goes into your brain and you go, oh, I just can't believe that number. And then it, the next number comes up and says, after the spring offensive, before the armistice, so be it, between the 700,000 dying and the end of the war, another million men died. Yeah. And you think, for what? For 60 yards of mud? And that's what all that was involved. You know, they were only, you know, taking and retaking bits of land. It the pointlessness of it all was just mind-numbing. Yeah. I, just, I, I just, I came home uh, and I just, I was, I was sat uh, at home and I just thought that that was unbelievable. Now my my grandfather fought in the war and I've read his diaries, and he was an engineer. But I thought, you know, he, all he talked about was his comrades and what they did in the war. He didn't talk about the horror of it because I don't think. You know, you could grasp the horror of it. It was just so unbelievable, mm. you know, unbelievable. So do you think this sensitivity that I spoke of is because people don't want to confront this? Well, I didn't want to confront it, you know. But in, in terms of watching the film, you know, it's a very powerful film. Um, it's not an easy watch. I think it's, it's, I think it's a wonderful, wonderful it, the performances uh, are are unbelievable. They're really uh, career bests for most yeah. of the the people there. But I have no idea what it is that that's that why people don't want to watch it because it is so good. It is so good, and it it just shows up sh- yeah. the the stupidity. Who cares that you know Franz Ferdinand, Duke Franz Ferdinand, was killed? So why did millions of men have to lose their lives because it was, of that? It was like every other war, wasn't it? It was all about territory. But yeah. the Second World War, there were principles. Yeah, um, this, it was just basically the, the, all the countries decided that they were, they were really itching for a war. They hadn't had one for yeah. a few decades. Um, or Maybe mm. less than that, two decades. Um, ah, let's go to war, and it, it, it was almost a, a decision amongst them, wasn't it? Um, it? It could be that you know this money, money orientated days that trench warfare isn't, you know, it won't make money. Uh, and the other thing that and I, that's I, a I terrible think, thing I in think itself. World War Two is easy for an audience. You know, there's the goodies and the baddies. 
Yeah, and and, and, and we're in different places, places and, and, they're, uh, and they're moving around, yeah, yeah. whereas they're pretty much going up and down a trench. In yeah, World and War it's I. static, and yeah. and nobody understands why it happened, and nobody understands why millions of people but had to die. Way more stories that we're missing that we're yeah. not hearing yeah. that maybe we should be hearing about. Yeah, and if you look, um, World War One was the first filmed event so we can actually see it and we've also got the amazing world war one poets as well mm. you know you got your wilfred yeah. owens and your sassoons and people like that which really bring the whole horror to life but you know i still don't understand why you know why world war one occurred and it's and it's pointless and you know the generals were idiots well they were let's let's give them the benefit of the doubt no one had ever fought a mechanized war before no uh, and that was one of the reasons they were fighting wars from the previous century. Yes, the, the Boer in War. Or, mechanized, yeah. The mechanised situation. But the fact, the fact that they carried on for four years failing mm. ah, is, good point. is the monumental <laughs> stupidity. Right, yeah. Is, is, uh, yeah it, it, was, it was, oh, we'll keep doing it and it'll come right eventually. Yeah. No, it won't. Yeah. You're mechanised now. Yeah, yeah. And I noticed that the generals didn't write home to tell the people that their sons had died they actually outsourced that right to the captains in the trenches so every time people were killed they had to write home and say and, oh we've and lost. this is the perhaps part of the source of his uh, yeah. of his problems he saw his men just disappearing yeah and nobody cared no and, no. and yeah and he had to write everything really in here feel for him and there's a, an absolutely harrowing scene in the film where he's lost his best friend, effectively. He's having to write this letter home to the, the this man's wife and he's having to put the watch in there and his personal possessions. And you just think, he's, you know, he's trying to keep it together. He's trying to be brave in front of his men. He's just lost his best friend. He has to write to the wife. And just it mounts up and mounts up. And then the young second lieutenant says something's totally stupid and irresponsible and he just turns on him and goes mental and i thought yeah that's justifiable rage because how can a person function with that sort of nonsense going on he was a lieutenant wasn't he Mm -hmm. out lieutenant stand up yeah i got his rank right yeah but his bosses are his his captain and and everything just idiots the colonel the colonel i thought he was a major wasn't he yeah major yeah Um, absolute yeah, the colonel was at least sort of um, close to the front line, yeah. a mile away. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, it was the generals that never got anywhere. No, they were 12 miles back, sat in yeah. Paris. Yeah, the, the colonel wasn't much better. He asked him at one point to speak to the men before a suicide mission, effectively. Yes, exactly. Yes, and he just away. walked away. Yeah, he walked away. He couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. And yet, <laughs> the young... He didn't care to do it. No. no. And the captain had to stand there and watch his best friend be killed in front of him because that was the other thing that was great in the film it gave you that clear indication of how close the germans were from the uh, british troops because they were only about 60 yards away you could actually see the heads of the germans as they were moving around yeah, in the trenches yeah. and i'd forgotten how close that was and and i thought oh wow that's really powerful because you know you, you can run across it in a couple of seconds and and attack the germans but they had machine guns you know, so you were never going to make it. And it mm. was just horrific. Great film. Great film. Great performances. Yeah. You know, Toby Jones is slight comic relief with lots of really dark black comedy. Yeah. And 
and the fact that it was all filmed effectively underground in the sort of in yeah. the, the the officers' mess, a real claustrophobia, real claustrophobia, yeah. and and that just increased the the tension among the the officers, and the fact that one of them was just he'd had enough and he just wanted to go home, and he was creating yeah. illnesses, and mm-hmm. and and I thought, you know, most people would see him as a coward, and I thought, uh, no, well, that's just actually, how you're going to react. Actually, that's how most of them would, you know, threaten yeah. to be shot. Yeah, but uh, I mean, uh, even the colonel, it's uh, Philip Gl- Glenister, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, I thought he was Robert very Glenister. Good. Uh, Ro- Robert, Robert. It's Robert Glenister. Robert Glenister. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he I, he was very good. I mean, callous is not a really word um, that uh, yeah that doesn't quite uh, go as far as yeah. it should do. Really, and uh, the really. the other thing was it was horrific, and yet I don't think it was as horrific as it was in real life. No, no, they they by filming away from the violence. So, for example, mm. when one of the major characters, you said the best friend, gets killed, you don't see that. No, no. So you don't get that impact yeah yeah and and when you realize what that mission was what it was all about and it's just doubly annoying because it was just completely and utterly pointless yeah it was because are we going to give this plot point away that they capture the german and then they give him a cup of tea yeah yes it's madness yeah you know they 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 lose what they sent 12 men only four returned only one officer returned out of the two officers that went. So, you know, it was way over uh, half their men got killed. They grab this German, they bring him back to headquarters, and they say, they just take some letters out of his pocket and go, oh, the attack's going to be on Thursday. We've got our intel. And yeah. these guys are devastated. They've lost, you know, good friends. He lost, he, he 12, 13, 14 went out, was Yes, it? And, uh, and, and four, four, men, four, four men, men and one officer came one back. One officer came yeah. back, yeah. Okay, well, these are our thoughts on Journey's End, and personally speaking, I would say it is the best film I've seen this year. But what what are your thoughts? Mm. If you've watched it, or this has got you interested in watching it, and you then do see it, please let us know what you think. We'll uh, read out your comments on air. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>